If you'd open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 9. When I was uh, listening to uh, Nepo sing, I was thinking, sorry brother, <laughs> I think of that as being his recorder, but anyway, uh, I didn't mean to knock that over, but I was uh, just, you know, sometimes you think, I don't know if it's strange, but I was just thinking back who would have thought. I know he would have never thought that many years ago when he moved to Savannah, if somebody told him that he was going to work in a bakery, become a Christian, get married, and then he would be rewriting music on hymns that he liked and singing in church, he would have said, there's no way that's happening to me. Uh, but here he is. And, uh, it's pretty awesome to, uh, to see that. Anyway, let's bow before the Lord. Fathers, we come before you this morning. We just want to thank you, Lord, for the book of Ecclesiastes, though at times, Father, it, is a, it can be a heavy book, at times a little difficult to, to wade through, to really grasp what's going on here. At times, Lord, the book is, is heavy philosophically, and uh, Father, we know that you've preserved this for us. So, Father, as we weave our way through this book, we pray that you would help us to be able to think about it the way that we ought to. To remind ourselves that these things have been preserved for our benefit. These things will help us, Father, in understanding life, understanding ourselves, understanding others, understanding how things are. We thank you, Lord, for the many questions that are raised by this book. As always, Father, we are grateful that, though the book does seem dark and dreary at times, we know, Lord, that for those who believe in Christ, that is never the end of it because of what Christ has accomplished. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning. And we, Father, eagerly anticipate you speaking to us through your word. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to all of them. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building a great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. A couple weeks ago, we ended with this phrase, Achipiri diem coram deo, which the idea was, that we are to not just seize the day as you would uh, with the phrase carpe diem, but that we should receive the day before the face of of God, that we should be grateful for the day that God has given us and live each day out for him. But as we read our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, and Solomon has done this several times, once again, he brings up the problem of death. He's not trying to be morbid. He's just trying to get a good grasp on reality and relate 
accurately what he is seeing, what he is observing, and what it is that he's thinking about. And so death is just looming on his mind in a very large way. Now again, we do need to keep in mind as we read through this as believers, that the word of God has shed light on this problem, and it's been done so by Christ. Death for the believer no longer has the same sting that it does for others. It is a truly a stepping stone into God's presence. And we do need to remind ourselves of that because we too also, maybe not in quite the same way, we, we live with death on a daily basis. There are always those that we know that are dying, especially the older that we get. We do know that it is inescapable. It is inevitable. We don't like to dwell on it. But we know that it is coming for us. And we don't know when that's going to be. And sometimes that can be kind of unsettling. But we also know that as believers, we await the resurrection of the dead. And that is promised to us in the word of God. We do not deny that this side of the consummation of God's kingdom, that uh, there is suffering when it comes to death. But we do know that it is really a mere shadow from what it used to be. So the section that Solomon is getting into now in these verses, 11 through 16, it kind of revolves the same idea or theme that is in Proverbs chapter 24. Let me read to you verses 5 through 7. A wise man has great power, and a man of knowledge increases strength. For waging war, you need guidance, and for victory, many advisors. Wisdom is too high for a fool. In the assembly at the gate, he has nothing to say. Now, let me read that to you again from the New Revised Standard Version, because it reads this way. Wise warriors are mightier than strong ones, and those who have knowledge than those who have strength. For by wise guidance you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. Wisdom is too high for fools, and the gate they do not open their mouths. Now when you read through that in the book of Proverbs, and it talks about wisdom and how great wisdom is, what a good thing that it is, that a wise man is one who has power, and a man who has knowledge also increases in strength, That is not what he's talking about here in Ecclesiastes because he talks about this man being a poor man and then after his wisdom delivers the city, he's forgotten about. So there's not these grandiose ideas about this wise sage walking around and wherever he goes, people want to listen to what he says. Again, remember what he says. I've seen this example of wisdom under the sun. So he's seen how wisdom is exercised and here he talks about this one little city. Now, people have tried to figure out what he's talking about here, and they've looked at different references in the Old Testament, and they're thinking, well, is he referring to this story? Is he referring to that story? Uh, I think the best um, one uh, comment I've seen on this is that we don't know. We just don't know what he's talking about. We just know that he's familiar with some story where there was a small walled village that was being besieged by a king, and somehow they were delivered by a man who's been forgotten because this man had great wisdom. And so... The thing that was interesting is that in many of the commentaries, there is this discussion about what Solomon is really trying to get at, especially when he mentions about the wisdom of this man being despised. I think one of the things that's illustrated here is that as we look at Proverbs and look at Ecclesiastes, is wisdom does prevail, it is successful, it does deliver. But I think what Paul, or Paul, what Solomon wants us to notice is that when wisdom was delivered by a poor man, now, just stop for a moment, because when we think of a poor man, 
I know that in Jewish theology, especially during the time of Christ, the belief was is that if, if, a, if a man was financially poor, that that was somehow indicating that God was either against that man or at least God was somehow withholding blessings from that man. So uh, an individual's financial position, or maybe his lack of financial position, they believed or they assumed uh, communicated something in a very negative way. And people tend to do the same thing today. You know, when it comes to those who are in power, when it comes to those who are wealthy, we tend to, in mass, we tend to listen to what they have to say. And if some guy is, you know, is the janitor of, of some place, uh, we tend not to uh, pay a lot of attention to it. In fact, sometimes we will speak with great surprise if a janitor seems to have wisdom. Uh, and that's because we've made these prejudgments about individuals, about what, it, what their financial position, what that means and what it says about them. So here, we have this wisdom that's delivered by a poor man, and, and I believe the contrast is more greatly enhanced because it mentions that when the kings come against this city, it's a great king. He's, he's saying that on purpose. He wants to contrast those two individuals. So not only was the wise man poor, he was not powerful like this great king, but his wisdom, whatever it was, it prevailed. And Solomon points out, uh, someone points out that it is something that is despised. Despite what took place, it's despised. The poor man's wisdom is despised. And so the question should be, why? Why is it that way? What does, that, what, what does it mean? What's he trying to get at? So even though wisdom itself prevailed and, sh- and it showed itself to be mightier than mighty warriors, some, some translations will say that the poor man's wisdom was disregarded. And I don't think that's really a very good translation because it wasn't disregarded. It could mean that what they're trying to get at there when they say that his wisdom was disregarded, that somehow the man himself was disregarded, not necessarily the words that he spoke. And so again, when you re- get into the commentaries, there's this discussion about those things. But I think that when you read through uh, all the translations of the passage, in the end, what we realize is that the man's wisdom, whatever he offered, it was not ignored. They did what he said, but he himself uh, was ignored. He himself was kind of disrespected. He was looked down upon. He was despised, or maybe his wisdom was despised, because of the source. In other words, uh, one commentator said this, This world is so dark, so perverted, and so stupefied by sin, selfishness, and egotism, that unless wisdom is clad in power, riches, and splendor, it is despised and disregarded. So I kind of thought in my mind, how, how would I kind of get this point across? And so let's just imagine there's a conversation, and the conversation goes this way. Uh, between two individuals, and one says, we were saved thanks to Hank. Well, yeah, Hank was just lucky. He's still a stupid jerk. What? He saved us. He figured it out. Just because some poor fool made a lucky guess doesn't change who he really is. His dad's a loser, his kids are dirty, he's just stupid, and he's lazy. So where's all that great wisdom? Hank is just a lucky bum. That's kind of what's being communicated to us here, is that whatever wisdom this guy stumbled upon, this individual was just disregarded afterwards. It was almost as if there would be a huge celebration, and they forgot the guy that was the key to all of it. Solomon, (coughs) I believe, wants to point out that this man of wisdom falls back into obscurity as soon as the danger is over. 
He is abandoned and he is entirely forgotten. It was interesting, I was reading through Kyle and Delich. That's an old, uh, an old Old Testament commentary. And in verse 15, it says, uh, He, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Then in verse 16, it says, And his words were not heard. And as I said, that's not, I don't think that even is the best translation because they were heard. But as they talked about it, they said this. They said in verse 11, the author uses the word I saw. And so the author is introducing his observations. But then when he jumps down to verse 16, we come to his reflections. So when it comes to his reflections, he is saying, and he's saying correctly, that wisdom is better than strength, since it does more for the wise man and through him for others than physical force. So again, you can have mighty men, you can have a large army, the whole deal. And the bottom line is that wisdom is always going to win the day. So it's a much better thing to have. However, when it comes to the respect which wisdom normally secures for an individual, if it is the wisdom of a poor man, it's going to sink into disrespect. Because his poverty, they believe, exposes him. If it's necessary that this poor guy is needed because of his wisdom, his service will be valued only for a short time. But as a rule, his words are going to be unheeded. Because the crowd estimates the worth of this individual that they are willingly hearing according to his outward respect in which he is held. In other words, once again, they look to see what it's packaged in and they want to disregard it. And again, it's not just only individuals who are poor. You know, we could kind of exchange a lot of different, I guess, adjectives in there, descriptive words to talk about individuals that we kind of look down upon. But in the end, there's just a, a crowd of individuals that have certain types of qualities, characteristics, mannerisms, what have you, and we kind of despise those individuals. So Solomon is kind of lamenting that idea, first of all, in, in this way, because he really values wisdom. He knows how great wisdom is. And he does not like this idea that there's this individual who has wisdom, and he's just kind of disrespected it in this way. And of course, as he's looking at it, he's like, so What's the point of all of this? Once again, what he, what he recognizes, what he observes, is things aren't going the way they should go. The man who has wisdom should be honored. The man who has knowledge should have power. But I myself know a story where this guy doesn't have any of those things. And yet his wisdom actually delivered a city and kept everyone alive. So again, the wisdom itself was not despised. It was the man himself. And this was kind of an abnormal case. Now listen as I read the words from the Gospel of Mark. When he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him, and when the Sabbath day had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? a brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with him? And so they were offended at him. Same thing happened to Jesus. Jesus is teaching. And they were hearing what he said. And they were astounded by what he was giving them. You could tell how his mind was working by the words that he said. He was communicating clearly and deeply what the word of God had to say to the point that everybody recognized that. And then it was almost as if someone said, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. We know who this guy is. And it's almost at that moment they just turned off completely what he said. What he said was still true. What he, still, what he said, they still had great value. 
they just turned all of that off because he's just, he's a carpenter. We know his mom. We know his brother. This guy is nothing. And so they were offended by that and immediately just stopped listening. In verses 17 and 18 of Ecclesiastes 9, Solomon says this. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. But one sinner destroys much good. I'm not sure of all the things he's getting at when he makes that statement. But one sinner destroys much good. But it is a a key, it is a clue to helping us to understand all the difficulties that he's recognizing. Those who sin, those who have a habit of sinning, those who disregard God, those individuals can wield a great deal of destructive power. They can undermine a lot of things. So he still says that wisdom is, is important. He still thinks that wisdom should be heard. Wisdom heard in quiet is a, is a very valuable thing. It's much more valuable than the shouting of fools. But at the same time, understand there's also other things that are happening at the same time. And even though wisdom has such great weight and such great value, in the end you need to recognize that just one person, just one sinner, one individual who goes against the grain, so to speak, can destroy a great deal of good. Proverbs 17 uh, verse 27 says, He who has knowledge spares his words, and a man of understanding is of a calm spirit. Or a man of knowledge uses words with restraint, and a man of understanding is even-tempered. So here what happens is, is that a man's wisdom, a man's knowledge is combined with his ability to control his emotions and this man's calming influence on others. So once again, it's, it's pointing out the good thing when it comes to wisdom. Wisdom then is calmness. A wise ruler is open to his instruction. Even though there is a superiority to wisdom, it only again takes one fool, one sinner to destroy a whole lot of good. So in trying to figure out why, what is the point that Solomon is trying to get to in all of this? When you, when you look at this little story he gives and, and you know, what, it's, what it's surrounded by, what is it we can gain from this? And so I came across a, a phrase or a term that I thought was pretty good. It's a retributive paradox. It's not that we use that kind of phrasing all the time, but this is what it means. It is the recognition that reality does not always fit with act hyphen consequence structure experience often creates a paradox so the act consequence structure what that means is and what solomon is operating by is that a man does good he should reap good a man does evil he will reap evil a man works hard he will gain wealth he will enjoy the work of his hands a man is lazy his needs will go unmet he will begin to suffer That's how he views the world. But what he's seeing is, is he sees a wise man, or he sees a man of great knowledge, and those men aren't necessarily reaping what they sow. Those individuals themselves may be suffering greatly. He sees good men doing good things, and evil things happen to them. He sees the wicked who seem to be getting away with their wickedness. Not only are they living a good life, they're not punished or held accountable for what they're doing. We've said before, as we've looked at some of the other sayings in Ecclesiastes, he talks about an individual who's lived this wicked life and appears to have all these good things and dies, and it seems as if those who have the funeral kind of forget how wicked he was. And it's all these things bother him. 
and wisdom, which is near and dear to his heart, and believes that wisdom then should, should bring the man who has wisdom, should bring that individual respect, that's not happening. And so what's he trying to get through with all of this? And so this paradox that, that he's been observing, when the wise are despised and their contribution is ignored, it is painful and it is fraught with mystery. And as he mentions many times, it is an enigma. It is incomprehensible to Solomon that this is going on. And he does want to make sense of this. Remember that as we work our way through Ecclesiastes, that most of what we're reading is the efforts of a very wise man who is making these observations and he's kind of coming up to his conclusions with God kind of on the back burner. He's not going to bring that in and says, well, this makes sense of all of that. He wants to get into this thing very deeply and really share what's going on and what he, what he observes and what he, and what he is uh, thinking about. Even when wisdom is available, society tends to disdain it, thereby assuring its own destruction. So this is how I think we should kind of absorb all of this when it comes to the understanding you and I have of the world. It should be that as Christians that we also have a very good grasp on reality. We also see that there are people who are good and bad things happen to them. We also see that there are individuals who do evil and it seems they're not held accountable for what they do. We get upset if a man's a, or a woman's a dirty politician and they seem to not be held accountable for what they've done. It really gets under our skin. It bothers us. We see these things. We see those that we, we sometimes use the word innocent. It may not be the best word, but we think about those who are innocent victims. Individuals who seem to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. They've done nothing to anybody. They're just trying to live their life and fulfill their responsibilities, and they're killed. We hear of kids who are, you know, there, many stories come out of Los Angeles and, and uh, Chicago where there's some kid on the way to school. And you find the kid was, was doing well in school and, and there's a crossfire between two rival gangs and, and they're, they're killed. And so we see all of those things. We see all kinds of leaders who are caught in lying to us about all types of things. Individuals who are getting ripped off. You might even know individuals. You may be the victim of a crime yourself. Where someone, you know, uh, I know my home's been broken in three times. That's just not a, a joyous thing to have that happen. I don't know who broke into my home, and I bet you I don't know who they are. And they don't know me because they don't care. They just wanted whatever they thought they could get out of our house. It happens to all kinds of individuals. Well, when someone that you know, someone you work with, complains about the world, about the unfairness, about the lack of justice, the lack of love, the lack of kindness. I believe that not only should you, uh, I believe that you should agree with them, but then I think at that point you should begin to push it a little more. Our goal should be we want them to really feel what they're talking about. This is not such a, some superficial conversation. I want them to feel the kind of dread and confusion and and frustration that Solomon feels and what he's writing about here. I think that we have an obligation as believers to help them feel the despair that in this world there is no hope. That's not being negative. Remember, we, we're, we're going to get to the gospel, but we want to make sure they, that they are really grasping what they're saying. 
Because sometimes, maybe it's a lot, but sometimes when individuals complain about the way things are going, they're not really into it. You know, we all can just start throwing out things that are negative. We all can kind of agree and just kind of move on. So what you want to do is you want to kind of pause for a while and camp out on that and begin to push that a little more. You want them to feel that as an individual. And so you want them to know that there is no hope. No hope. In fact, sometimes you can even find different ways to, to destroy what they might be thinking you might be thinking. They know you're a Christian. You want to make sure you throw in other ideas, such as, yeah, things are really bad. In fact, I know this for a fact. Even if these individuals go to church, that's not going to help them either. Some individuals are like, what, what did you just say? Now, they, may not be, they might be afraid to say that because they don't know what's going to come out of your mouth. But see, that's a good thing to say. <laughs> yeah, they can go to church all they want. That's not going to help them. I know guys who have picked up a Bible and started to read it every day. It doesn't do them any good. You can pray. It doesn't mean you know God. You want them to know that that's no good. No one's being fooled by that. And doing those things in and of themselves doesn't help anybody. Some individuals say, well, as long as you have faith in faith, really, what good is that going to do? Challenge them on those things. Francis Schaeffer said it best. I was trying to find the quote, but I couldn't find it. So, but, I, but I remember what he said. He said, it's not enough for a man to know that he's at the end of his rope. You want to help him know there is no rope. Boy, that's different. So when someone says they're holding on to the end of their rope, try to be creative. Find a way to let them know they're not holding on to a rope. He also said this. He said, um, he says, you want them to feel, you don't want them to feel that they are in danger of falling off the cliff. We want them to know that they've already gone over the edge. They're already falling. So if they say, yeah, our societies are on the edge. Oh, no, no, no. Society's already gone over. If they're on the edge, no, you're not on the edge. You've already gone over. Francis Schaeffer believed that most unbelievers are not ready to hear the gospel because they have many questions or objections that are in their way. And maybe we need to remember that. Think about that. When it comes to what we see in the world, people still are not ready to hear the gospel. They're not ready for that yet. They don't really sense their need. In fact, often... The conversation about the ills of the world help an individual feel better about themselves. Because I'm not part of that. I'm not like that crooked politician. I'm not like that doctor that was ripping off Medicare. I'm not like that cop that was taking bribes from drug dealers. I'm not like that. And so because I'm not like that, yeah, this world's really, really bad, but I'm the guy that's outside looking in. So what we want to do is we want to burst that bubble and kind of spread the net and let them know, no, that's exactly who we are. We are that individual. We, too, violate what God has said. And as a result, we all stand condemned. Francis Schaeffer sometimes was known for making statements about uh, things that seemed to be obvious until you thought about them, and it wasn't quite so obvious. And he made this statement, we cannot talk with non-Christians about the gospel unless we talk with them first. What he meant by that was that you just can't walk in and basically just kind of just throw out the gospel. You need to talk with them. You need to find out who they are. Find out what they love. Find out what they struggle with. Find out what they're worried about. Find out what they believe about the world. Get to know them. Talk to them. Try to, try to help guide them to the truth of the word of God. 
We don't want to talk just superficially with them. Remember that the gospel of Jesus Christ involves very serious life and death issues, which are deeply personal. And we don't want to just jump in cold without first establishing a relationship with the ones that we're talking to. There is a place when you meet someone for the first time and you can just get into the gospel. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. But for most of the people that we know and meet, that is not as effective as it should be. Because once again, you're talking to an individual who, as they listen to what you're saying, might only be thinking, I'm so glad you have convictions. I'm so glad that you're willing to state what you believe. Man, you are a person of strength. I admire that. I wish I could share the things that I think are true. But I'm still working on that. And so they turn the whole thing on its head where you're trying to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to them and all they're doing is, in a sense, applauding you for taking a stand. That's not what sharing the gospel is to be about. That individual needs to know, they need to sense and feel the angst that Solomon is talking about here, and they need to be disturbed deeply. And we need to be the ones that disturb them. Not, so we, not by being obnoxious. It's not that we're trying to bring attention to ourselves, but we have a mission to accomplish. And the mission we have to accomplish is to help them to understand the truth of the Word of God. Remember that the truth of the Word of God is they die without Christ, Hell is a real place. They really are going there. You need to remember that. Because sometimes it seems we forget that. People that we've known for a long time, it seems we forget we're going to attend their funeral one day if we live longer than they live. And what are you going to think? Where are they going to be? We're not trying to be, you know, massive party poopers. But we do want to make sure we're living in reality. Do we really believe the gospel? Does, do these kinds of things really bother us? Relationships that we have with others develop when there is, again, an openness to communicate honestly our thoughts and feelings with them. Non, we need to recognize that for non-Christians, their thinking and the way they think about the world is at odds with reality. Not just on religious issues, even though we can jump on those really rather rapidly. But the individual who, who may just say, and they're usually very nice and they have a wonderful smile and their teeth are whiter than your teeth. And they say, you know, all religions just lead to the same place. Well, 98% of them all do lead to the same place. They all lead to hell. Right? But that's just a nice thing that people say and they, and they mean well, but we, we need to undermine that. And you don't have to undermine it all at once. Maybe through a long course of many different conversations. I've talked with individuals before who've told me that as they have shared the, the word of God with friends in different ways, that it seems like every single time they have a conversation with their friend, they're always contradicting what their friend says. And they're worried that their friend doesn't want to be their friend anymore. Because they're saying, well, yeah, but no, not really. Well, no, it's not exactly that. No, you always, but ask the Lord for wisdom. We need, we need to be willing to do that. And sometimes we're afraid of what they would think of us, and that's of greater concern to us than their need to understand what the scriptures are saying. Again, we're not talking about politics. We're not talking about, about individuals who may be liberal or conservative or somewhere in between. 
or talking about is the way they think about the world. And if it is, if it is at odds with the scripture, then it is also at odds with reality. They do not see it correctly. At least Solomon, and what he's writing, sees things right. He's not just making things up. He's disturbed by these things. So we may need to ask some probing questions. We need to find the point of tension where the unbeliever's view of the world and the world as it really is come into conflict. We want to, we want to help them get there. And we don't want to resolve it too quickly. Through my readings of Francis Schaeffer, he taught that when we find points of tension, we should gently push the conversation towards the logical implications of the non-Christian assumptions that have been made. Basically, all you're doing is this. Well, if that's true, then that would mean this, and that would mean this, and that would mean this. You need to help them realize that that is not where you want to go or where they want to go. As we do this with individuals, it should become increasingly obvious that the world is not the way they view the world. Even if you come across an individual who just says, well, I just believe everybody is basically good. Do you really believe that? You believe that everyone is basically good? Now, I know I've worked in jail, and I've met my share of individuals who I don't think are basically good, but I think most individuals who haven't been to jail would still, if they really thought about it, would not say everyone is basically good. That's not something from the Scripture that's true. Everyone is basically evil. It doesn't mean that we hate people. It doesn't mean that we think bad about everyone, but the bottom line is, is what does the Scripture say? The Scripture says that man is not good at all. Man is a rebel, and he's against God And he's against others as well. Most people, and sometimes this is true of believers, and this is sad, but when it comes to non-believers, most of them have not thought deeply about their own non-Christian beliefs. We need to help them to do that. It may even begin to surprise them to hear their own thoughts as we encourage them to think out loud. So remember that when we have these conversations, you may not always come to conclusions at the end of the conversation. It's one of those things, well, we'll talk more about this later. And you, have, and you talk some more. We'll talk more about this later. But the idea is to help them flesh out whatever it is that they're thinking about the world. We need to do that. And sometimes you can bring up the book of Ecclesiastes. Whether you quote from it or read aloud from it or ask them to read it, say, well, maybe that's what Solomon was talking about. Or you can just say, well, you know, I've been thinking about this. You know, and, and the idea of death. And there, some individuals say, well, you know, there's nothing we can do about that. You know, that's in the Bible. That's exactly true. There is nothing we can do about that. But there is something that can be done about where, what happens to us after we die. And we, and we want to get to that place with that individual. That's important. Remember that for most individuals, their default position will sound something like this. Well, I don't really know about all that. I'm just hoping in the end that my good will somehow outweigh my bad. And that's when you then should say something like, it won't. Just tell them. Ah. Or you can say, that's not a good place to be. Why? Because your good is not going to outweigh your bad. And then you can get into the discussion like, so where have they found in print the ratio list that says if you do this one bad thing, how many good things you have to do to make up for that? Because that's what you're banking on. So the conclusion is, is that what we have to share with them, what is the solution to all of these things? Jesus understands this himself. Because of sin in the world, wisdom is despised. And because of sin in the world, the one who brings wisdom is often despised. 
because they're not like us. Jesus was a man of sorrows. He was despised. But this man understood the effects of sin. And so when we look at all of these things in the world and see the things that are going on and all of the messes that are there, what we clearly understand is that these things are being remedied by Christ. How are they remedied? They are remedied because these things all have their source in the sinful heart of man. And that was addressed by Jesus Christ on the cross. And that is the message that God has given to us to share with them so that they can be made right with him. So they can join us as being those who have been made right with God. And therefore we then together can worship him and thank God that he has spared us from the dismay and from the frustration that this world has to offer that Solomon so richly talks about. We have been delivered and we will be delivered by the gospel of Christ. And because of that we have great joy. And our friends don't have that. They don't. For them, life is like it was for Solomon. It is an enigma, and they can't grasp it. But we do have the message that will bring great clarity to their life. Let's pray. Father, as always, we are grateful. You are so good and kind, and as we think about the words of Solomon and the things that he wrote about, Father, Lord, these things at times plague us as well. We know, Lord, that there are moments in our life where death looms larger than at other times. I pray, Lord, you would help us to think about death as we ought to. I pray, Lord, that it would not disturb us as individuals, though it will always be disturbing. I pray, Lord, that you would give to us both boldness and wisdom. That, Father, we, we may be able to help our friends, that we may be able to help those that we love, to understand that they do have a need for Christ. Help us, Father, to be able to gently push them in the directions of what they're talking about when it comes to the messes in the world. Help us, Father, to help them to realize that <coughs> the way they think about the world or the way they think about the solutions of the world just don't hold any water. Help us, Father, to find that point of tension. We ask, Lord, for your wisdom because, Father, we know that on our own we'll really mess that up. We want to get to the point, Father, we can explain the gospel to them and they can have the great joy and hope that we have and that we possess. We thank you, Father, again for the gospel. And so, Father, we ask now that throughout this week, that, Lord, that you remind us often of the message that we carry within. The Lord, that we would think often about our friends and loved ones that we come in contact with on a daily basis. We ask, Lord, that you remind us that we are to pray and ask you to help us to find those moments, those opportunities we have, to be able to slip in a word, a phrase, a sentence, or maybe even a discussion. That, Father, we may help to undermine their flawed belief and view of the world. Now, Lord, that they may, by your grace, come to understand that their life without Christ is hopeless. But that hope is there in the work and the person of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we thank you for the great gift you've given to us and the message that we have to bring to others. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.